Luke chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is God's word. God's word for us today. When I speak, everybody uh, in the back stands up. Am, are you not hearing me? Let me see if I'm wired. Another reason my mom would celebrate back in the day. She didn't like electronics. So with apologies to my mom, uh, here's some electronics. Thank you, Brother Philip, for reading God's word for us this morning. Uh, we are, as you know, beginning a new series. We are also beginning the season of Advent. I want to begin with my father, who was born in a house uh, with three sisters. And in 1967, he and my mom felt a burden of God and brought home a one-month-old baby girl who was born in Vancouver with no name. And he then named that little girl Mary Anna Margaret Bunton. No guesses as to what were the names of my father's three sisters. <laughs> my uh, father believed in the gospel that says we have all been adopted and given new names, children of the king. And he wanted this little girl to grow up knowing she not only had one family name, she had four. A reminder that she had been adopted by those who sought her out and loved her. And today, my sister is an independent businesswoman full of confidence and conviction because of the way she started out in life. None of us can control our birth. It happens to us. My every memory of my sister and my father was like this. She grew up on my father's lap, surrounded by the safety of strength, even when things weren't always that safe. In fact, this photo was taken... Uh, when I was 11, 1968, on my great uncle's property in central British Columbia, and two weeks after this photo was taken, my great uncle shot a cougar who was smelling humans on this inner tube. It wasn't that safe, but my father's presence made my little sister feel completely safe. In fact, she grew up in a day when there wasn't even seat belts in the car. She was still in my father's lap, holding the steering wheel, <laughs> led to believe that she was in control of the destiny, at least for a moment, of her entire family as we trundled down the roads in the backwoods of British Columbia. It matters 
how you start out. So this is going to be an unusual sermon. As you know, we're beginning the Advent season. We're beginning a new sermon series. And as you have just noticed, we are just preaching on three introductory verses. So the outline is simple. We're going to identify the author. We're going to identify the first reader. And we're going to identify the purpose for that reader then and for these readers now. We're calling it beginning with certainty, and let's first identify Luke in verses 1 through 2. Uh, Luke is a fascinating person. He is known to have written about 28% of the New Testament, but we really know very little about him. We do know that he was likely a second-generation believer because there is no indication that he heard anything or saw anything firsthand. We have no indication that he actually met and knew the living Christ before he was crucified. He was known as the beloved physician. That's what the Apostle Paul called him in Colossians chapter 4. But we should know that doctors in the first century weren't universally esteemed. There was no specific training for physicians in the New Testament in the day. In, in the first century, there was no credentialing for doctors. So some were good and decent physicians, and some were quacks just taking advantage of people. We should be clear that Luke's position in the early church was one of esteem, not because he was a doctor with a title of physician, but because of his position in Christ, he was beloved. Most of what we know of Luke, we know of church or from church tradition. The earliest writings of the early church identified Luke not as a Jew, not as a Hebrew, but as a Syrian from Antioch. He was a young doctor living in Antioch who first heard the gospel from a Jewish Pharisee whose name at the time was Saul. So Luke was early fruit of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He was one of the church members in the church at Antioch. He was among the group that was praying when the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me these men for my purpose. Send them out for the sake of the gospel. This was what we know of Luke, mostly from church tradition. That means, by the way, that Luke is the only non-Hebrew biblical writer. All the other biblical writers were of Hebrew descent and were likely Jews. Luke was the exception. He was not a Hebrew. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 1, you will recall, we, we preached on Acts, I think, a year ago. Acts is a second volume, and in Acts chapter 1, when Luke is retelling the story of Christ, the end of his days, and the death of Judas, he specifically names the plot of land in which Judas died, and he uses an Aramaic term. And he specifically says in verse 9 of chapter 1, this is named after their language, meaning the Hebrews. Not my language, it is their language. So here is how this beloved non-Hebrew, non-Jewish doctor begins his message. Inasmuch, inasmuch 
as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Now, we need to stop right at that one word, inasmuch, because it is an unusual word to begin a biblical narrative. It is never used in religious writings. In fact, this word that we have translated inasmuch is the only time this word can be found in the New Testament. It's not a word that religious writers used. It was a word that secular writers used. The word inasmuch was used by Philo in his narratives on Greek philosophy. That word inasmuch was used by Josephus, the secular scholar who wrote a history of a, in, a Bibli- in a narrative form. It was a secular word, and this is important. And this, by the way, is why this seminar that the YA are having for all of us on Saturday is important. Luke specifically sought to pull the good news of Jesus Christ out of the vault of religious mystery and place it in the fresh air of public space. He was moving the dialogue of the gospel out of a religious box and into the marketplace. So he didn't say things typically like in the 15th chapter of Isaiah. He typically said things like in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar because he wanted people to see that this good news is placed in history. It's not just in a in a moldy religious library, all of this happened in the middle of human history. So he took the good news of a holy book and placed it into secular history with that one word. Now let's move on. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile this narrative, it's important to recognize the first thing he's saying is, I'm not the first to write this book. I don't have anything specifically different or unique to say. In fact, you can find almost the entire gospel of Mark included in Luke's version of the gospel. But secondly, he is specifically identifying things that this gospel accomplished among those who heard it and were given the faith to respond to it. He's not just saying, this is what we've seen and heard. He's saying, this is what those who have observed us have seen and heard in us. Something has happened to us. It's not just a story. There's evidence of the affect of that story in our lives. We are not the same people. Many of us don't even have the same names. We were given new names because we had an encounter with this powerful news that changed everything for us. That's why he said these things that have been accomplished among us, these are the things, not just that we have seen and heard, but these are the things that others have seen and heard among us. Something has happened to us. That is the news. It's more than just a story. It's real life that is life changing. And so verse 2, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, there's two categories of people from whom Luke got his gospel. 
He was one of the bystanders who stu stood by and recorded words of those who had been there from beginning, who were eyewitnesses to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But he was also impacted by those who were, quote, ministers of the word. Let me be clear, this is not a specific occupation. He's not saying I benefited from a good pastor when I grew up. This was a normal phrase. It actually literally means slaves. The Greek word is hyperatis, the lowest kind of slave, the slave who was a captured foreigner chained to an oar underneath decks pulling on a warship oar. That's who we heard from, slaves to this good news who couldn't help serving this good news. That's not a specific office in the church. That's all of those who have been impacted. They delivered this message to us. Well, let's take a moment and identify this man, Theophilus, in verse 3. Now, I know that some of you don't like it when the preacher starts from the end, but I need to deal with the person first, and then we'll work backwards through this verse. Theophilus has been the source of scholarly debate for hundreds of years. Scholars have asked the question, who is this man who received this volume? Remember, it wasn't a letter. It would have been a thick scroll delivered to this man, identified news according to Luke. In your Bible, the subtitle may say, The Gospel According to Luke. It's important that we know that there's been this debate about this man. Some scholars have suggested that he was an influential Roman official, perhaps even a relative of Caesar himself, who was appointed and placed in Antioch. Others suggest that he was actually a, a wealthy missions benefactor. He was the one who funded Paul's mission trips. What that means, if this is true, was that the book of Acts was actually a missionary report sent back to the benefactor of this missions initiative. And by the way, this painting obviously is not him. He didn't sit for this portrait. So, some would say that Theophilus may have been Paul's court-appointed legal counsel to try and get him released from prison and many other scholars of the more progressive variety said, no, he's, he's just like a metaphor. You know, he's, he's nobody and everybody. He's, he's all of us. But here's what we can know from the text. He had a name that he wasn't born with because he was very likely a Roman. But he had the name Theophilus, which meant friend of God, or beloved of God. And as I've already mentioned, many in the first century had their names changed, sometimes by request, sometimes by the Word of God, when they first heard and were impacted by this gospel. In fact, years ago in, in Penang, I had a dear young man who was coming to our student ministry. His name was Zixian. 
And Zixian uh, began to share his life, and his uh, family were Taoists, and they, they worshipped at the, the Temple of Nine Emperors. And so once a year, Zixian was required to take one of the gods out, a territorial earth god, and, and I, I'm not sure, just take him out in the streets. And they would go through the streets celebrating the glories of the earth god. And he said to me one time, uh, uh, Uncle Ian, this, this is my burden I can believe in Jesus, but I go home and, and, and then I have to carry the earth God. I wish I didn't have to. I wish I had another name. He believed this, this yen in the gospel and came to me and said, Uncle, can you give me another name? And so I named him Christopher, which means one who carries Christ. More than likely, this influential affluent Roman citizen was given a new name as he was seeking out the truth of the gospel God's people began to tell him you are beloved of God you will be called Theophilus this we can know from his name we also know that he had more than a name he had status in his culture because he wasn't just addressed by Luke as Theophilus. He was addressed as most excellent Theophilus. Which again is not a name that Christians would give to each other. It was recognition that he had a title outside of the church. We see this title referenced in the book of Acts. It's the phrase that the Apostle Paul used in Acts 24 when he was addressing the Roman governor of Judea. He identified him as most excellent Felix. It's also how Paul addressed Portius Festus in Acts 25 when he was forced in court to defend his sanity. He said, most excellent Festus, I'm not out of my mind. I'm moved, perhaps, by God's Spirit. So it was a title of exaltation given to men outside of the church. But something tells us that this title did not stick. Something informs us that this most excellent Theophilus got an even higher title of honor. Because by the time he gets to Acts chapter 1... Luke is no longer identifying him with the title of most excellent. He is now giving him a title of more greater and higher honor, which is brother. So in the church, we are not lawyers and doctors or reverend doctors. The highest title of honor is brother and sister. And so in this we knew and can be convinced that Theophilus was in a, a man who was in spiritual transition. He was a man who was beginning to realize that this God is real. He was in the process of being transformed by the renewing of his mind. But at this point, he was still most exalted, most excellent Theophilus. Because it's in the world that we exalt the person. And now Luke writes this man. So the question now becomes, how 
does the person that Luke was and the person that Theophilus was impact the orderly account that Luke was preparing to deliver to this man of significant influence in the community? That is a question we're going to answer right now because if you stick with us for two years, you will see all of these major themes coming out in the Gospel of Luke. First of all, we see that Luke's Gospel is good news for non-Jews. He was not a Jew. Theophilus was not a Jew. His message is, this is not just good news for God's people, the Hebrews. This Gospel is good news for every one of us. No matter what family or people group we were born into, this is good news for us. Secondly, Luke's Gospel emphasizes that God is sovereign over all of human history. He's not just sovereign over those who believe Him. He's not just sovereign over His chosen people. He is sovereign over all of human history, and that's why it was important for Luke to place his Gospel within the context of human history. Third, it's a gospel of prayer over personal merit. You know this is going to be edited out. But when the founders of this nation realized we have been kicked out, they didn't have a prayer meeting. They said, let's establish a new order where everyone, no matter ethnicity, no matter religion, no matter country of heritage, they concede based upon what? Their own merit. But the Gospel of Luke is a Gospel that says we cannot be saved by doing everything humanly possible. Luke's Gospel to this man of merit emphasized the power of prayer over the power of personal effort. Fourth, it focuses on stewardship over ownership. He wrote to a man who was a landowner, a Roman citizen, who had celebration of the law of extraterritorialism. extraterritorialism sorry, that means wherever a Roman foot stepped, he could claim the land. To this man, the Gospel of Luke was a communication crushing his proud soul, saying everything you have and are belongs to God. Your breath and your time is borrowed. That's a clear emphasis in the Gospel of Luke. A fifth emphasis is the central role of forgiveness in every relationship, modeled first by the divine actor, who modeled forgiveness on the cross and second should be imitated in every personal relationship you have. You either have relationships of ongoing forgiveness or you have broken relationships. Sixth, and this is really significant, this non-Hebrew secular doctor transformed by the gospel was writing a man of great honor and influence informing him that this gospel is announcing a great reordering of honor. The poor find favor in God. The rich 
are at risk. The first are becoming last. The last are becoming first. The proud are being humbled. The humble are being exalted. And listen, I know we're, in egalit- we're not an egalitarian church, right? We're complementarian. But this is important. An exaltation of the role of women in the Gospel of Luke. Eighteen times in the Gospel of Luke, women have a starring role. They loved Jesus. They cared for Jesus. They sponsored His ministry. They followed Him even to the cross. They cared for His dead body. They were the first evangelists, the first to know that He is risen. An elevation of the role of women in the Gospel of Luke. So let's talk about purpose. How does all of this impact the purpose of this gospel, the purpose of this particular gospel writer writing this particular gospel receiver. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In Roman philosophy, there was a worldview of the power of the goddess fate. It's a philosophy that's very common in Asia. It's why in Penang one day, a young lady, Peronica, said to me, of course you're Christian people. You were born in Canada, but if you were born in Saudi, you'd be a Muslim. It's just fate. Theophilus was born with this. I worship the emperor and all the gods because I'm Roman. He had to be convinced that this God is sovereign even over Rome. He was in the process of believing. Some of us have learned evangelism. We've learned the gospel in a very Western way, which is you, you buy this sales pitch, this religious sales pitch, and once you've uh, believed, you just say this prayer, which is like signing the contract, that then you're safe. But the New Testament never talks about salvation in that way. Salvation is a pluperfect tense. We are in the process of becoming saved. We're not past tense, done, bought our fire insurance, it's awesome. Theophilus was in the process of becoming a child of the King. And so right from the very beginning, Luke wanted him to have confidence, be certain concerning the things he has been taught You can trust your life with this. And that's why by the time we get to Acts, Theophilus had a more honorable title. No longer most excellent, but brother. I'm getting ready to reveal how safe this space is in this auditorium. Because I'm going to ask you a question. It's not a rhetorical question. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. This is not an altar call or an invitation. It's just interaction part. A specific rhetorical question. I'll give you a moment to strengthen your hearts. So here's the question. How many of you have ever walked into a room 
and not only had no idea how you got there, but couldn't remember what you came for. Just raise your hand. Philip, thank you, brother. You're with me. Well, young people, are, are you kidding? I remember everything. <laughs> you, you know, I wonder why this happens so much to me. And, and as some of you know me well, you know I have this constant fear that I'm, I've got some form of dementia because I keep for, forgetting things. In the office, they call me the pastor who never leaves once because I always come back to get my phone or my keys. I have this happen to me all the time. I, I'm suddenly in a room have no idea how I got there, and, and more importantly, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do now that I'm here. I've, I've come to believe that experience is a gift God gives us to remind us that this is our life. Because let's be honest, not even one of you remembers how you came into this world. You're just trusting your mother's gospel. She told you how you were born. She reminded you of the trauma. She reminded you then I held you. You know because someone told you. And also most of us are just like Theophilus. We're here. We don't remember how we got here. And for sure, many of us don't know what we're here for. This is Luke's gospel to Theophilus and us. Now, if, if you know Elder Caleb Yap, you know that occasionally this brother's going to wreck you because he reads so much. So this, this week, my brother posted an article in the BBC that really just crushed me. It's not what you think it is. But yes, the article, and, and you can go on his Facebook page and, and find it from the BBC, talks of a day when Nagasaki was one of the most Christian cities in the world, almost 400,000 Christians lived in Nagasaki. In fact, in the 16th century, Nagasaki was called the Rome of Asia because so many in that city had embraced Christ. And it caused alarm among the leaders in Japan. And so in 1597, 26 Jesuit missionaries and priests were crucified in Nagasaki. And that began a time of extraordinary persecution among Christians. There is a movie called Silence that I purchased in 2016 about this event. And to this day, I haven't been able to watch it. Authorities realized that if they killed everybody, they would just create martyrs. And so they passed a law that every soul in Nagasaki, whether they be Christian or whether they be Buddhist or Shinto or anything, they would be required 
to take an image of Jesus Christ placed in the mud and trample on it as a confession that I do not follow this foreign God. It was called Fumi. And it was effective to not step on the image of Christ was to guarantee not just execution, but severe suffering. In fact, people were tortured with a doctor nearby to keep them from dying. They were cared for and then tortured again if they would not step on the image. And there's one video clip of a broken-hearted Jesuit pleading with his Japanese believer, trample, trample. So much, this by the way is just an image from the movie, so many people trampled on the face of Christ is it wore his face away, erasing the image of Jesus in Nagasaki. And here's what wrecked me, Caleb. Simon Hall, Ph.D. in Nagasaki University. One of the paradoxes of Japanese Christian history is that if all Japanese Catholics had refused to trample on the Fumi, instead chose to die as martyrs, Christianity in Japan would also have died. It is only because some made an existential decision to trample on the Fumi despite their belief that this action was gravely sinful, that Christianity in Japan was able to survive today. This is what breaks my heart. Because my question is, yes, but what kind of Christianity? I'm not talking about Japanese. I'm talking about this pastor. Because for a big part of my life, I tried to live as a Christian in such a way that no inconvenience was caused to anybody else or to me. I wanted to fit in. I, I didn't want to offend people. I didn't want people to be angry at me. So much so that the image of Christ living in me was practically invisible. And yet, here I am. I survived the great Canadian persecution. I mean, after all, if I'd been aggressive, if I allowed the gospel to slip out in every conversation, somebody might have ridiculed me. Maybe somebody might have beat me up. So, this was what Theophilus was dealing with. How will I carry the image of Christ in me? In my position? In my life of influence? How will I bear the Christ? Do you remember this commandment? Not New Testament, Old Testament. Do not bear the name of God for nothing. Thou shalt not. So the question for us today is, like, how will we, 
how will this congregation of Theophili bear the name of Christ? How obvious will His image be in us? This is the reflection. How faithfully am I retelling the story God has written in my life? How faithfully am I retelling the gospel? Am I like Luke? He was not an eyewitness to the resurrection, but he noted everything. He wrote everything down. Everything he heard, everything he experienced, and more than that, the experience he himself had with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we God's people Bearing the image of Christ. Is His image wearing thin? As His face began to blend in. I want to invite you to bow with me for a moment as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. I wonder if you feel a little bit like me. Crushed by a news article. Destroyed by a religion that survived that perhaps was better off not. Reminded in the midst of studying His Word. that His image in us cannot be confined to a religious building where we celebrate Him with loud songs. Cannot be placed, locked up in our moldy and musty libraries. But needs to be, demands to be dragged out into public space, proclaimed with joy. I wonder as you prepare with your pastor to come to the Lord's table, are you like me? trying to get through this life with as little inconvenience as is possible. Or does your heart, like mine, need to be refreshed with the gospel according to a non-Hebrew named Luke, written to a man of great influence who turned away from it all to be called Theophilus, beloved of God. Here is inconvenience, love so deep, so devoted that one would abandon the glory of heaven for the humiliation of a cross so that you, friend, could bear His name. 
so that you could be adopted no matter where you're from. No matter what your ethnicity, your tribe, your place in society, you could be adopted into the family of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the sovereign of even this nation and my nation and this world. If you sense a stirring up in your heart, it's not because you've heard a sermon. It's not because you heard the mention of BBC and talking about Christianity. It's because that sovereign God is in this place right now. He's marking his children with his affection. And if you have felt the conviction of His Spirit as I did this week, He longs to embrace you. He is sovereign and is not surprised that you are in this place hearing this message. He is waiting to receive you. If in your heart you would but say to Him, Lord God, I trample no more but stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fill me with joy and conviction. Help me now to be certain of the things that I have been taught so that this life will not be a mystery, so that I'll know with confidence I am moving somewhere with purpose, so that I can know how I came and what I'm here for. Father God, we thank you that you are still the God who is sovereign over our history, that you are the God who called Roman men like Theophilus, and you call men and women like us. You call us with purpose for our good and yes, for your glory. So, Father God, may your glory be obvious in us this week. May you find us turning afresh to you, the God who gives assurance for the task of each day, who lends us breath, who gives life that you might be glorified in it. We bless you and love you today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite those who are preparing to serve with us to come and join me here at the front. I know this is always an awkward moment when in churches we celebrate the Lord's sacrifice and remember His second coming. I want to say to you, if you're not a church member, we don't practice closed communion. So if you are a baptized believer, that means you're authentic. You're the real deal. You've just said yes to everything He has asked of you. We invite you to celebrate with all of God's people. If you're not a believer, if you may not even be a Christian, let me just say there's nothing religious or magic about this. This is uh, something that we do to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. So if you're not a believer, I just encourage you to let it pass. Let the, the biscuit pass. It's not enough to feed your hunger. 
The drink's not enough to stop you from being thirsty, and it won't aid you in any way until you come to a saving knowledge of Him. Just relax and let it pass. There are some of us who, like I saw my father one time, he was a believer. I don't know what happened, but on that particular Sunday, he took the plate and passed it to my mom without taking it. That was a huge testimony to a nine-year-old boy. Because I asked him afterwards, did you forget? He said, no, my heart wasn't right with a brother in our church. If you feel like you need to do relational business as we prepare to study the gospel that emphasizes a lifestyle of forgiveness, if you feel you need to do that, then, then pass it by. That shows maturity in Christ. Just let it go. I want to invite my brother Lup Ming as we prepare to celebrate God's sacrifice in Christ to pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the bread. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for administering this sacrament, this bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for us, Lord. And Lord, as we take it, we pray that you help us remember, Lord, the sacrifice that you have made, the sacrifice that allowed us, Lord, to have fellowship with you, to have eternal life. And in response to that, we are thankful. In response to that, we are wanting to live our lives, Lord, that is worthy of the gospel. Father, we just want to give you thanks for that. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name.
The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, reminded them that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this body is for you. Do it whenever you take it in remembrance of me. Invite my brother Ollie to lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for the cup. Let us all pray. Father, we thank you for this cup, for this reminder of Christ's blood shed for us. Oh, we thank you that Christ came, he came, he died on the cross for forgiveness of our sins. He was raised to life so that we might know eternal life. And Lord, we thank you that he is coming back again. And Lord, we thank you for this cup, this cup, this reminder of this new covenant, this promise that you have for us that we can know with certainty that this is true, that our sins are forgiven and Christ is coming to bring us back together with him. May this good news, may this um, wonderful gospel continue to bring us joy and gratitude, Lord, even as we take of this cup. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
the same way after supper Jesus took the cup and he said this cup represents the new covenant engraved in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me I want to invite you to pass your cups to the aisles our helpers will pick them up for you if you're visiting with us this morning, we're so grateful that you've lent us part of your Sunday. We hope you'll join us for fellowship immediately after our service ends, which will end in just a few minutes. As scripture says that after they celebrated the supper together, the disciples sang a hymn, and so we're going to do the same thing. We're going to sing together, then Ollie will come and close our service. Thank you. So let us rise together and sing the song of response for the cause. <laughs> 